Hello, everyone. You know, if you know me very well, that I'm a great lover of Christian music, both the classic hymns and contemporary music. But I love the hymns especially because we are prone to sing them all our lives, and they get deeply into our hearts and into our memories. Some years ago, I wrote a series of three books, Then Sings My Soul, Book One, Book Two, and Book Three, which had the words, the music, and the stories behind our great hymns. These are still best-selling books, and I hope that you'll check them out. There is nothing apart from the Bible that helps us with our devotional life or serves as greater spiritual therapy as the wonderful hymns of the faith. In this week's podcast, I want to tell you the stories behind nine of my favorite hymns. As you listen to these stories, it may prompt you to look them up and sing them for yourselves or listen to them on your favorite music service, and I also hope it will prompt you to check out my book, Then Sings My Soul. I think that it will be a tremendous blessing to you, as well as a gift that you can give to somebody else. This is about the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. I've counted them. There are 138 passages of Scripture on the subject of thanksgiving, and some of them are powerfully worded. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, there are not as many hymns as we would have liked that are devoted exclusively to thanking God, but one of the finest is this one. Now, thank we all our God, which is a German hymn. In fact, the German Christians sing this hymn like American believers sing the doxology. And yet it's loved on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world, and it happens to be one of my favorite hymns. It was written by Martin Rinkhart, who lived from 1586 to 1649. He was a Lutheran pastor in the little village of Eilenburg, Saxony. He grew up as the son of a poor coppersmith, but felt called to the ministry, and he managed to get some theological training and began his pastoral work just as the Thirty Years' War was raging through Germany. Floods of refugees streamed into this walled city. It was a very desperate time. The Swedish army encompassed the city gates, and inside the walls there was nothing but plague, famine, and fear. 800 homes were destroyed, and people began dying in increasing number. This created enormous strain on the pastors who expended all their strength in preaching the gospel, caring for the sick and dying, and burying the dead. But one after another, the pastors themselves became sick and died until only Martin Rinkhart was left. Some days, it is said he conducted as many as 50 funerals. Knowing that he could not have healing for his village without thanksgiving, it was out of this terrible context that Martin Rinkhart composed this hymn for the survivors of his city. It has been sung ever since. Now think we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. This is about the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Isaac Watts grew up attending the Above Bar Congregational Church in Southampton, England. 
He took to books almost from infancy. He was brilliant. He learned Latin at age four, Greek at nine, and Hebrew at 13. He loved rhyme and verse. After he graduated from grammar school, there was a wealthy benefactor who offered to send him to Oxford. But that would have required him to become an Anglican, and Isaac and his family were dissenters. So instead, he enrolled in a college-level school for dissenters near London, and he excelled there. After graduation at about the age of 19, he returned to Southampton and spent two more years at home. One day, he complained to his father about the dismal singing at church, because at this time in England, in most churches, only versified arrangements from the book of Psalms were used. Well, his father challenged him to write a hymn if he thought he could do better than David, as we're told that he was told. He did so, and the church requested a new hymn every week. They loved his writings. Well, Isaac at this time, 20 and 21, complied. Those two years in Southampton became the richest hymn-writing period of his life. Though he was barely out of school, he composed hymns that are still sung now, three centuries later, and we call him the father of English hymnody. He then became the pastor of Mark Lane Chapel in London. And in 1715, he published a book of hymns and songs for children. It sold 80,000 copies in a year, and it's been selling ever since. One hymn in this volume, for children, became popular with adults too. It's one of my favorite hymns. It's a great creation hymn. And it says, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at God's command, and all the stars obey. This is about the hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. Charles Wesley experienced a distinct moment of conversion on May the 21st of 1738, and he quickly began to spread the news of what had happened to him. He wrote later, In the coach to London, I preached faith to Christ to the passengers. A lady was extremely offended and threatened to beat me. I declared that I deserved nothing but hell, and so did she, and that she must confess before God that she was a sinner before she could have a title to heaven. He said this was most intolerable to her. Well, he found a more fruitful arena of ministry at the Infinite's Newgate Prison, where Charles allowed himself to be locked up with condemned men on nights before their execution so that he might comfort them and witness to them during their final hours. As the first anniversary of his conversion approached, Charles wrote an 18-stanza hymn describing his praise to God. He called it, For the anniversary day of one's conversion, the first stanza said, Glory to God and praise and love. And verse 7 began, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, inspired by a statement that Charles had once heard, Had I a thousand tongues, I would praise him with them all. Later, when this hymn was published, that stanza became the first stanza, and we've been singing it ever since. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. This story is about holy, holy, holy. 
Reginald Heber was born April the 21st, 1783, to a minister and his wife in an English village. After a very happy childhood and a good education in the village school, he enrolled at Oxford and excelled in poetry and became fast friends with Sir Walter Scott. After graduation, he succeeded his father as vicar in the family's parish, and for 16 years, he faithfully served as the local pastor. He had a bent towards poetry, and that gave him a growing interest in hymnody. He wanted to lift the literary quality of hymns, and he dreamed of publishing a collection of high-caliber hymns corresponding to the church year. But the Bishop of London wouldn't go along with it, and Reginald Heber's plans were disappointed. He continued writing hymns for his own church, however, and it was during the 16 years in this obscure pastorate that Heber wrote all 57 of his known hymns, including a great missionary hymn, From Greenland's Icy Mountain, which exhorted missionaries to take the Gospels to faraway places like Greenland's Icy Mountains and India's Coral Strand. This hymn represented an earnest desire for Reginald, for he felt God was calling him to be a missionary to India's Coral Strand. In 1822, at the age of 40, he was appointed to oversee the Church of England's ministries in India. Arriving in Calcutta, he set out on a 16-month tour of his diocese, visiting missionary stations across India. In February of 1826, he left for another tour. But while on this tour in a particular village, he preached to a large crowd in the hot sun and afterward plunged into a pool of cool water and suffered a stroke and drowned. It was after his death that his wife found all 57 of his hymns in a trunk, and she had them published. And this hymn was the great Trinitarian hymn based on Revelation chapter 4, and it said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This story is about a worship the king. Charles Grant, director of the East India Company, was respected throughout India as one of Britain's finest statesmen. He was also a committed Christian, an evangelical in the Anglican Church, and he used his position in India to encourage missionary work there. In 1778, just as England was reeling from the American Revolution, Charles returned to the British Islands and became a member of Parliament. His son, Robert, was six years old at the time, so the boy grew up in a world of power, politics, and privilege, but he also grew up as a devout and dedicated follower of Christ. As a young man, Robert Grant attended Magdalen College, Cambridge, and then entered the legal profession. His intelligence and integrity were obvious. In 1818, he entered Parliament, and among his legislative initiatives was a bill to remove civil restrictions against the Jewish people. One day in the early 1830s, as Robert Grant studied Psalm 104, he compared the greatness of the King of Kings with the majesty of the British royalty, which he was exposed to almost every day. And as he thought about the majesty of God, which far exceeds anything known on earth, 
His heart was filled, and he took out his pen, and he began writing one of the most magnificent hymns of Christendom. O worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. This is about the hymn, Just As I Am. Charles Eliot of Brighton, England, was an embittered woman. Her health was broken and her disability had really made her very hard. She said, if God loved me, he would not have treated me this way. Hoping to help her, a Swiss minister, Dr. Caesar Milan, visited the Elliots on May the 9th of 1822. Over dinner, Charlotte lost her temper and railed against God and against her family in a violent outburst. Her family was embarrassed and left the room, and Dr. Milan was left alone with her. You are tired of yourself, aren't you? he asked. You're holding on to your hate and anger because you have nothing else in the world to cling to. What is your cure? asked Charlotte. It's the faith that you are trying to despise. As they talked together, Charlotte became softer. She said, if I wanted to become a Christian and share the peace and joy that you possess, what would I do? He said, you would give yourself to God just as you are now, with your fightings and fears, hates and loves, pride and shame. I would come to God just as I am, she said. Is that right? And he said, yes. And she did come just as she was. Her heart was changed that day, and as time passed, she found and claimed John chapter 6, verse 37 as her special verse, He who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Later, she wrote the great invitational hymn, which has been used to bring more people to Jesus Christ than any other hymn in history. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. This story is about He Leadeth Me. On autumn nights, as we sleep peacefully in our beds, thousands of songbirds travel under cover of darkness heading south. Somehow they know their way. God has given them a state-of-the-art internal guidance system. Well, we are more valuable than many sparrows. If God guides his creation, will he not also guide his children? Dr. Joseph Gilmore, the son of the governor of New Hampshire, gave us a wonderful song about guidance, and he also gave us this account of how he came to write it. He said, As a young man recently graduated from Newton Theological Seminary, I was preaching for a couple of Sundays in the pulpit at the First Baptist Church in Philadelphia. At the midweek service on March 26, 1862, I set out to give the people an exposition of the 23rd Psalm, which I had given before on three or four occasions, but this time I could not get further than the words, He leadeth me. Those words took hold of me as they had never done before, and I saw in them a significance of which I have never dreamed. He said it was the darkest hour of the Civil War. 
I did not refer to that fact, at least I don't think I did, but it may subconsciously have led me to realize that God's leadership is the one significant fact in human experience, that it makes no difference how we are led or whither we are led, so long as we are sure that God is leading us. He said at the close of the meeting, a few of us in the parlor of my host, Deacon Watson, kept talking about the thought that I had emphasized, and then and there, on a blank page from a brief from which I had intended to speak, I penciled this hymn, talking and writing at the same time, and then I handed it to my wife and thought no more about it. She sent it to a magazine, and it was published and set to music. I didn't know that until... One day I went to Rochester to preach as a candidate before the Second Baptist Church, and going into the chapel, I picked up a hymnal to see that they were singing my own hymn, He Leadeth Me. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught, whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. This is the story behind Blessed Assurance. When Fanny Crosby was about six weeks old, her parents realized something was wrong with her eyes. The local doctor was away, but the Crosbys found a man, no one afterward recalled his name, who claimed to be a physician. He put a mixture of things on the baby's inflamed eyes, and in the process, it left her blind. The baby registered no response to objects held before her. And, of course, that deeply distressed her parents, but they took her from one doctor to the other, and there was no help to be found. And yet this blindness stimulated other gifts, such as her phenomenal memory. As a child, Fanny memorized large sections of the Bible, and whenever she wanted afterward to read a passage, she just turned there in her mental Bible and read it verbatim. This holy book, she said, when she was 85 years old, has nurtured my entire life. One of Phoebe's dearest friends was Phoebe Knapp. While Fanny lived in Manhattan and worked in the rescue missions in the slums, Phoebe lived in the Knapp Mansion, a palatial residence in Brooklyn where she entertained lavishly. She was an extravagant dresser with a wardrobe full of very expensive gowns and clothing. Her music room contained one of the finest collections of instruments in the country, and Fanny was a frequent house guest there. One day in 1873, while Fanny was staying at the Knapp Mansion, Phoebe said that she had a tune she wanted to play. Going to the music room, she sat at the piano and played a new composition of her own as the blind hymnist listened. Fanny immediately clapped her hands and said, Why, that says blessed assurance. And on the spot she composed the words of this great hymn we have sung ever since, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is the story behind the hymn, this is my father's world. Malt B. Babcock was arguably the most remarkable student Syracuse University had ever seen. Hailing from an aristocratic family, he was a brilliant scholar with a winning personality. Tall and still muscled, he was an outstanding athlete, 
an expert swimmer, and the captain of the baseball team. He also directed the university's orchestra, played several instruments, and composed original compositions. A proficient vocalist, he also directed the university glee club. He entertained other students by drawing and doing impersonations, and on the side he was an avid fisherman. Maltby Babcock would have been successful in any profession, but God called him into the ministry, and after further training at Auburn Theological Seminary, he became the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Lockport, New York. It was a beautiful area, midway between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, not far from Niagara Falls, and Maltby enjoyed hiking and running in the hills outside of town. He would tell his secretary, I'm going out to see my father's world. And then he would run or hike a couple of miles into the countryside where he would just lose himself in nature. It was during his pastorate at Lockport that he wrote a 16-stanza poem, each stanza beginning with the words, This is my father's world. In 1886, Maltby was called to the Brown Memorial Church in Baltimore. While there, he traveled widely and was in great demand on college campuses. He was a fresh, engaging speaker who never failed to stimulate students. In 1899, he moved to the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City, where he found it more difficult to take off on his hikes. When he was 42 years old, the church presented him with a special gift, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. With great excitement, this pastor, Maltby Babcock, departed by ship. He went to Naples, but while en route there, he was seized with a deadly bacterial fever and he died at the International Hospital in Naples, Italy, on May the 18th, 1901, in great suffering. After his death, his wife compiled his writings into a book called Thoughts for Everyday Living. It was published in 1901, and included with it was Maltby's famous creation hymn, This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hand the wonders wrought. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Today's episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing by our engineer, Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find that transcript of this episode, along with many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.